So the reading is Job 2, 1 to 13, um, page 510 on the Church Bibles. Job 2, 1 to 13. On another day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present himself before him. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord from roaming throughout the earth, going to and fro on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Skin for skin, Satan replied, a man will give all he has for his own life. But now, stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores, from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, Are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, You're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him, because they saw how great his suffering was. Amen. Thanks, Nigel. Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to see you, and a particular warm welcome if you're visiting. It's great to have you with us today. Uh, We sung in that song just before um, this reading the words, Breathe new life into my willing soul. Not speaking of physical life, because I suspect we're all physically breathing this morning. I hope we are. But it's talking about breathing spiritual life into our hearts, and it says, Into my willing soul. So, As we start, ask yourself the question, do I have a willing spirit for the God of the universe who made me to breathe spiritual life into me this morning, to change my heart? That's our prayer as we come to this passage together. Well, if we pop the first slide up, please. As Wellesley said at the beginning, we're starting this new series. Part of the vision of our church, under the big vision of seeing lives changed by Christ, is encouraging each other to persevere in the face of trials. It's one of the things that we try to focus on, and there are lots of trials in the life of the church. And as he's already said, there are a number of areas that we're going to be thinking about, growing a heart. And really, the big question of this week and the next uh, few weeks is going to be asking ourselves, as individuals and as a church family, how quick are we to step towards the hurt of other people? And specifically ask ourselves the question, how does the Christian gospel, the news of who Jesus is, what he's done for us, how does that shape the way that we respond to a hurting world? Because if there's a disconnect, and I believe a theological truth here of who Jesus is, what he's done, but doesn't have an impact on my life, then we perhaps have to ask the question, have I understood the gospel? It's not difficult to see, is it, that we live in a world full of hurt, 
all the time. And what's the natural first thing you do when you experience pain, suffering, hurt? You ask questions, don't you? It's normal. We all ask questions. In fact, in the book of Job, a puzzling book that we're just dipping into this week, 290 questions are asked. Sometimes they're asked by Job himself, 64 of those 290 are Job. Sometimes they're asked by his wife, sometimes by his friends. Lots of the questions are asked by God himself to Job. But in a world full of hurt, we also live in a world, therefore, full of questions. And you'll have your own questions about the hurt that you experience yourself or you see around you. Let's just reflect on some of these questions. The first and most obvious is the big question, why? Why, if God is so powerful and so loving, is there so much brokenness in the world? See, that maybe suggests that God is not loving or he's not powerful, because if he was, surely he'd do something about it. Is that not the first question perhaps we ask? And it's a very good question to ask. What about the why question of the sort of seeming disconnect we have between a biblical truth which we believe and perhaps understand up here, but we don't experience it. Here's a couple of examples. Psalm 147 says, The Lord heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Well, what happens if you're brokenhearted and the Lord's not binding up your wounds and doesn't seem to be healing your broken heart? There's a theological truth, but you don't experience that. What about this one? The Lord is faithful to all his promises and loving towards all he has made. Here's a truth. What do I do when I don't feel that God is loving towards me? When I don't feel he's faithful towards me? There's a disconnect. What about this one? This is actually speaking of Job, where James writes his letter, and he's speaking about Job. And Job says... The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. I know that theologically, but what happens when I don't experience his compassion and when I don't experience his mercy? So there's the why question, if God was so powerful and loving, why doesn't he deal with the broken world? There's the disconnect question, I believe these truths, but I don't experience them. There's also maybe the assurance question. Is it really possible to love a God when he allows me to experience so much hurt and suffering? Am I really going to be able to keep going in life where it's so broken and the pain runs so deep? Is it really worth it? The final question you might ask is a question surround this whole idea of confusion. Maybe you say, look, I try to honour God. I try to please him. I try to put him first. And life just seems to get harder. And I look across the road and there's someone there who doesn't know God and isn't interested in God. And their life just seems to be pretty comfortable. What's going on? And Job would have asked the same questions because in his culture there was something acting called the retribution principle. It was the idea, if you suffered, it's because you'd done something wrong. And if you flourished, it's because God was blessing you. And that's the theology that Job's friends throw at him when he starts suffering. Sometimes we can feel like life is a bit of a sort of cosmic poker game. Uh, And uh, we sort of have to take our gamble a little bit and uh, life throws us our lot. All sorts of questions that a broken world of suffering throws up. A few things to reflect on. As you think about these questions, I want to encourage you. Questions, when we question, particularly when we question God in our pain and suffering... Don't think that that is irreverent or it's wrong for a Christian to get angry at God. It's wrong for a Christian maybe to shout at God, to wrestle with God. You've just got to read the Bible and there are plenty of people who wrestle with God. 
people who know him and love him, but get angry at him. I want to suggest that it's not irreverent to get angry at brokenness and suffering, yours or someone else's. Equally, it's not irrelevant when you're suffering. God doesn't look at you and say, well, you're just small fry. You're just one person. There's seven billion other people and plenty of other people have got bigger, more legitimate problems than yours. So why are you bothering to cry out to me with your little problems? He never says that. Also, when you see someone who does know and trust in Jesus and they ask deep, deep, profound questions of suffering and faith, that isn't always, if not often, a necessary sign of a faith in crisis. Sometimes we see a mature Christian who is really struggling and they ask really profound, deep, big questions of life. And what do we want to do as a fellow Christian? We want to draw alongside them because we're a bit worried. Maybe they're giving up their faith because they're asking a question of God, my goodness. And what do we try and do as well-meaning friends? Often we put an arm around the person and we want to fix their problem. We want to throw a Bible verse at them that will make everything okay. Sometimes when a mature Christian asks a profound question about suffering, it's not a crisis of faith. It's just a person living by faith. So actually I want us to see that asking questions of pain and suffering, crying out to God, is a sign of our humanity not a sign of ungodliness or a sign of immaturity. Actually, the opposite is true. And the Bible gives us permission, I think, to cry out to God in our brokenness. And we need to understand that. And so we're looking at this puzzling book of Job. And people ask the question, well, what is Job all about? Ah, it's a book all about suffering, people say. Well, sure, it's a book that has lots to say about suffering. But Job is not a book primarily about suffering. Job is a book primarily about who God is. And how God treats us in our suffering and brokenness. And it's a wonderful book. And one of the big questions that the book of Job asks is this. What is the basis of your faith? Is it your experience of life or is it the character and promises of God? Because if my faith is based on what I experience, then what do I do when I suffer? Oh, God's not loving. Oh, God's not powerful. And we give up. But if the basis of our faith is who God is, then we're able to cling to him in all the brokenness and pain that we experience. And so Job asked that question. It helps give us a different perspective for our life. And here's one that's pretty challenging. Maybe we don't like this. Maybe we won't accept it. But the God who created us is more interested in our relationship with him than he is about our comfort. That's tough, isn't it? Surely if God loved me, he'd just want to take away all my pain and suffering. But often it's people's testimony that it's through the pain and suffering of their life that they draw closer to him. And a few people are nodding around the room as I say that. And your people I know who suffered in profound ways. Give me an illustration. There's lots of tents out at this time of year. People either go camping or they put up a tent to shade them from the sun. Imagine there's a tent here, okay? Imagine if I said to you, there's a dog inside this tent. And you walk round the side and you walk in the front of the tent and you look for the dog and you can't see the dog. Is it reasonable to deduce that there's no dog in the tent? Yes or no? Yes. Okay. If I tell you that there's a tiny, tiny insect in the tent and you walk round to the front of the tent and you walk in the tent and you look for the insect but you can't see it. Is it logical to to deduce that there's no insect in the tent? No. But why? You see, just because you and I cannot understand or see what is going on in front of us doesn't logically mean 
that it's not happening. Just because I haven't got an answer to the brokenness of suffering of the world doesn't mean that there isn't an answer. But you and I have to recognize our deep limitations as people who've been created, that we can ask these questions. They're really important questions to ask, but we don't always have an answer for them. And that's really important. And the amazing thing about the book of Job, you journey, it's a long book, 42 chapters. Job asked loads and loads of questions, and questions asked of Job. And the extraordinary thing is, right, not until right at the end, does Job have any relief from his suffering. But what he does ultimately find is the God who meets him in his suffering. And that is the experience of so many people in the brokenness of our world. That God meets us in our brokenness. His love for us is not about sympathy and sentimentality. It's far more robust than that. And it teaches us about ourselves too. It reminds us that our life is messy. That we experience highs and very deep lows. That we haven't always got answers to them. That there's much that's beyond our comprehension and we won't understand this side of heaven. So that all sort of sets the scene for jumping into the book of Job. But if you've got the Job open in front of you, come back to chapter 1, verse 1. As the book opens, this wasn't read to us, but we read that we're in the land of Uz. No one knows where Uz is, but the most scholarly reckon it's in southeast Israel. Let's go with that. They're in the land of Uz, and there's this man there called Job, and he is blameless and upright. He fears the Lord, and he shuns evil. Uh, Blameless here doesn't mean perfect. There's only one person who's perfect, and it's not you or me or Job. It's the living God. Blameless here is a reference to someone who has a deep, deep commitment to God. Verse 2, we're told he's wealthy. He has loads of cattle. He has a large family. He's well known. But something extraordinary happens to Job. The devil, and it's a bit of a puzzle, is given permission to kind of wreck his life. And we ask questions, well, why? And the devil causes great suffering to Job. His cattle are plundered. His wealth is taken from. His servants are killed. And then in a freak accident, his whole family dies. Everything he has is stripped away from him. Do you know the song we often sing, Blessed Be Your Name? Matt and Beth Redman wrote that song. They wrote it soon after the death of their newly born child. You give and you take away, but blessed be your name. Tough thing to say, isn't it? But they wrote those words in real brokenness. And that little phrase, you give and you take away, but blessed be your name, is really the theology of the book of Job. We'll come to chapter 2. God then goes on to describe a bit more about Job, and he says... There is no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And he still maintains his integrity. See, Job was a man of robust faith. Faith not being the strength of trust that I have, but faith being that which I place my trust in. And Job placed his trust in the living God, which is why he had a very robust faith. But then what does the devil say to God? Verse 4. Skin for skin, a man will give all he has for his own life. What he's really saying is, listen God, you've allowed me to take everything away from Job outwardly. His cattle, his wealth, even his family. But listen, you've not yet hurt him in a very, very personal way. Let me get to the very heart of this man Job and I will show you that he will curse you to your face. I will show you he hasn't really got integrity and he doesn't really trust in me. And so he says, verse 5, let me uh, now stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and blood and surely he will curse you to his face. And so God in this rather puzzling passage allows him to and says, okay, 
but you must spare his life. And we ask that question, here we are, why does God allow suffering? Why is God not merciful? And you have to wait right till the end of the book of Job to find out the answer to that really big question. But then Job's wife turns up, verse 9. And after the terrible affliction of these sores that Job is inflicted with, Job's wife rocks up and she says, Come on, husband, surely now you can't maintain your integrity. Surely now you should just curse God and die because he doesn't care about you. God had commended Job's integrity in chapter 1. And here, his wife is saying, no, you haven't really got integrity because when you're really suffering... You'll give up following him altogether. What Job's wife is saying to him is the big question that many people say in the world. How on earth can you believe in a loving God when you suffer? And so Job's wife says to him, God doesn't really care about you. He's actually just punishing you. And then look at Job's response, verse 10. You are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? It's the idea of... You give and you take away. God, you bless me with good things, but also I have to suffer difficult and terrible things. But we read in all this, Job did not sin. And it's an amazing little story because in verse 7 you get Job's grief and in verse 10 you get his integrity, clinging to God. And the two can go hand in hand. We can ask real and robust questions of God in our suffering, but we can still trust him. Then Job's three friends rock up. There's Eliphaz, the Temanite. There's Bildad, the Shuhite, shortest man in the Bible. That's a joke. He was Shuhite. Zophar, uh, the Namathite. And they hear about his troubles. And they come to him. And they go and comfort him. And they're very well-meaning friends. But we'll see by the end of the book that their perspective is very limited and the comfort they give is limited. But they start really well. And what I want to do this morning is to focus in on verses 12 and 13 because they have lots to teach us about how we meet other people in their hurt. Have a look at verse 12 and 13. When they saw Job from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. just want us to reflect on those words. Three little things to help us as we consider the heart that you and I have for those who are hurting. Here's the first one. Do you have a heart that feels the hurt of other people? When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. That's a cultural uh, sort of expression of grief. Little box here. I want you with your invisible pen that you have in your hand to write in this little box the hurts that you see around you. Just think of somebody close to home, across the road, somewhere else. And as you think about the name that you've written in your little invisible box with your invisible pen, here's a question for you. What stops you feeling the hurt of that person. Sometimes we're so busy that we don't feel the hurt of others. Sometimes we're so, so busy we don't even see it because we're just rushing through life with our own agenda. But often we see hurt, don't we? But we're so busy we haven't got time to do anything about it. 
Some people, some of us at times can be caught up with the comfortable life. I see a lot of hurt, but I'd rather just to be comfortable. It's easy just to turn a blind eye. That's a deep conviction for us all, perhaps. How else do we fail to feel the hurt of others? Sometimes we can easily forget a really significant date, an anniversary, a a would-be birthday, something where it would be a wonderful opportunity to feel the hurt of others, but we just forget. Some of us perhaps even afraid of feeling. It's the kind of British stiff upper lip. I'm afraid that if I really feel the hurt of others, it would expose the hurt in my own heart. So actually, if I step away from the pain of others, it's a way of suppressing my own pain because I then have to never deal with it. I want to encourage us to be individuals and to be a church that feels the pain of other people. Sometimes that means that we need to slow down enough to see it and to stop. So here's your invisible box and you've written in it with your invisible pen. Will you this week feel the pain of whoever it is you've written in that box? Second little challenge, will you draw close to the hurt of other people? You see, it's one thing to see the pain, it's one thing to feel the pain. But will you draw close to it? Have a look at Job's friends, verse 13. Love this little verse. It's a great picture of pastoral care. Then they sat on the ground with him. What stops you from responding? You might see people's hurt. You might even begin to feel their hurt. But what stops you from actually drawing close to the hurt of others? Here's a few suggestions. This is a big danger in a bigger church. Somebody else will. I see the pain of someone across a room. A bit costly to go and talk to them. I'd rather just have a relaxed time. Somebody else will walk towards the pain of them. So I don't need to. Small church, not so easy. Big church, someone else will do it. What else stops you sitting with a person in pain? Maybe we can say, it's just too messy. My life's quite ordered and I want to do certain things. And if I sit with someone whose life is messy and I sit with them, it's going to cost me. It's going to mess up the niceness of my life, the ordered compartments of my life. Walking with hurting people is messy, so sometimes we can just avoid it. Sometimes, as we've already looked at, we're too busy. It's just a bit of an inconvenience, if I'm honest. I do care about that person who's hurting, but someone else will look after them. Big truth, hurting people mess up our schedules. They blow our schedules out of the water. They mess up our diaries. They mess up our leisure time. But is that not a good thing? Uh, one of the problems in the West, perhaps, is we live with what's in, in what some people, have, sociologists, have called a transactional culture. A transactional culture is we get things done. Put in A plus B and we get C. A lot of other cultures, particularly Eastern cultures, are more relational cultures. You might have heard the little quip from some African brothers, and I think there's truth in this. And I've often heard it when I've travelled and worked in Africa. You guys can tell the time. We have time. Sometimes we can mock people, oh, you start so late, you're never on time for a meeting. I think punctuality is important. That's another question for another day. But sometimes people are late for things because there's a need that they meet along the way and it messes up their schedule. But they see that need. See, do you feel the pain of others and do you draw close to the pain of others? And third little thing, and this is perhaps where it gets most costly and it's most challenging... Do you stay there? Have a look at Job chapter 2 verse 13. They sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. 
No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. There's a real cost in walking alongside a person who's hurting. And many of you here will know that. There's a far greater cost at walking alongside a person who's hurting and staying there for as long as it takes. And so often we're not very good at it. Because we love people and we want to help them, but not when it really, really costs us. But we're going to come to see in how the gospel helps us with this. Do you feel the hurt of others? Do you draw close to the hurt of others? And will you stay there? Remember I said at the beginning that the book of Job is not ultimately a book about suffering. It's not even a book all about Job. And the lessons from this passage aren't primarily about how do we respond to the hurt of others. Though these things are really important. The book of Job is actually a book all about God and how he responds to our hurt and brokenness. So as we look at the three things on the screen, let's just look at how they mirror when we look at the gospel. Just as I've encouraged you to feel the hurt of others, here's a truth which we need to let sink into our heart. God feels your hurt. He feels it. Some of you here will be hurting in ways that perhaps nobody else knows about. Because you're not able to share the hurt or no one will really get what's going on in here. Here's an amazing truth. God feels your hurt. One of the verses, I think it's as far as I'm aware, the shortest verse in the Bible. It's one of the most powerful though. Two words. John chapter 11, verse 35. Jesus is at the grave of his great friend Lazarus. He dies and what do we read? Jesus wept. That's all the verse says. God feels our hurt. Think of Isaiah 53, the great prophetic chapter speaking about God's suffering servant. Speaking of Jesus, the one to come, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Sometimes when I'm talking to people who are not Christians, they say to me, how can you believe in a God who is immune from suffering? Do you know how I respond? I can't and I don't. I couldn't believe in a God who's immune from suffering and I thank God that I don't. I believe in a God who feels the hurt of other people. I believe in a God who, in the person of Jesus, stands beside the grave of a loved one and weeps. Another verse I've reflected on this week. Here's one for you if you're really hurting and it's a hurt inside. Psalm 56, verse 8. If you've got a pen, write that down. Psalm 56, verse 8. You, God, keep track of all my sorrows... I love this bit. You have collected my tears in a bottle. You have recorded each one in your book. Isn't that an amazing comfort? You cannot cry a single tear on your bed at night or in a locked room where no one sees or in your car when you drive off to some quiet place. You cannot cry a single tear and God doesn't see it and catch it in his bottle. That is the God that we're talking about. Not a God who's distant, who sort of looks down in some general sense at the brokenness of the world and goes, oh, I, I really care about people. But it's a God who feels the hurt of other people and he feels your hurt, which is why he catches your tears in his bottle. Yes, feel the hurt of other people, but before you even dare do that, know that God feels your hurt because it's understanding and knowing that God that helps you to feel the hurt of others. Yes, draw close to the hurt of others, but don't forget that God 
has drawn close to you. Here we're talking about the incarnation. How the God of the universe, who has always existed, took on flesh and blood and grounded himself to get involved in the mess. You know all the red kites that fly over us all the time? I often sit in my garden and watch them, they're beautiful. Imagine if a red kite that was designed to fly decides to land in my garden and walk about. Does it for a second cease to be a red kite? No. But it's chosen to limit itself and walk along the earth, even though it was created to fly. It's a bit like that with God when he enters time and space in Jesus. It was a self-imposed limitation in taking on flesh and blood and coming to this earth. The Bible tells us that God speaks to us in many and various ways, but he has spoken most powerfully in the person of his son. And what is one of the names of the son of God? The word. What do words do? They communicate. And what does God want to do? What's the clearest way he wants to communicate with a broken world? By entering into it in flesh and blood, in the person of his son. In the beginning, we read in John's Gospel, was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Speaking of Jesus Christ, the Word. And then what do you read in John 1.14? The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. God entered time and space. He entered the brokenness of our world. And we read of this man who entered time and space. He came from the Father full of grace and truth. He's a God who cares, and he's a God who knows about our brokenness. Feel the hurt of others, but know that God feels your hurt. Draw close to the hurt of others, but know that God draws close to your hurt. And then the real challenge was stay there. When God calls us to stick around broken and hurting people for as long as it takes, just reflect on his example of sticking around when it cost him. We looked at this last week, didn't we? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, 4 who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. We looked last week, didn't we? What is the joy that was set before the Lord Jesus that meant that he endured the cross? That meant that when in the Garden of Gethsemane he said, take this pain and suffering from me, yet not my will but yours be done. The joy that was set before him was you. It was me. It was all the people that God had created. You, we are his joy. And it was that joy that led Jesus to the cross. And the greatest pain, the greatest suffering that any of us will ever suffer is the suffering of separation, marked in death. We have a wonderful healthcare system. We want to give thanks for our doctors. We want to give thanks to all those who look after us. They do an amazing job. But there's one thing that no doctor can do. They have no power ultimately over death. And yet there is one man who does have power over death because he enters time and space. Not a God who's immune from suffering. Suffers himself on the cross. Not deserving it, but does it because he loves you. He loves me. And in that moment where Jesus could have walked away from the pain, he stuck about. He stayed in the garden. He stayed on the cross. And he smashed death to pieces so that you can know him. That is the God that we serve. So as we draw to a close, when you look at the book of Job, you look at Job's blamelessness and you look at his perseverance. And that is meant to be a picture of Jesus himself. You might say, oh, you're just being clever. You're making a link between Job and Jesus. Well, I'm not trying to be clever. Because twice in chapter 1, the first chapter, and four times in the last chapter, 42, Job is referred to as my servant. And that little phrase is used very sparingly in the Old Testament. 
of saviour characters. And Job here is pointing us to our saviour, the one who rescues us in our brokenness. And the amazing thing about the book of Job is that the living God who loves Job meets him in his brokenness. And so Job says in chapter 13, verse 15, Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. Suffering intensely, but I will hope. And then he says in chapter 19, verse 26, I know that my Redeemer lives. I myself will see him. Think about that little verse. Job spoke those words. How much more can you and I, if we're trusting in Christ, speak those words with great triumph? I know that my Redeemer lives. I myself will see him. And so friends, as we seek to feel the hurt of other people, let's know that the God that we worship feels our hurt. As we seek to draw close to the hurt of other people, let's know that God is not immune from suffering. He's drawn close to our brokenness. And as we seek to encourage each other to stick about and walk alongside people with the hurt they feel, as long as it takes, let's give thanks together that that's the God that we serve, one who stuck about for us and went to the cross so that we can proclaim with great boldness, I know that my Redeemer lives. Do you know, if you're here this morning and you don't know that truth, please don't leave here without really thinking about how much this matters. You might be saying, I don't want to worship a God who's immune from pain and suffering. Nor do I. And I thank God that I don't. Should we pray together? Just for a moment of quiet, why don't you consider the hurt that perhaps you're feeling in your heart? And if you're blessed at this time in life without significant pain yourself why don't you consider the hurt of another we don't have to look very far Lord God we thank you that in the person of Jesus you see all the brokenness and hurt in our world thank you that you feel it and thank you that you stick alongside us in all of our brokenness we thank you for this amazing truth I know that my Redeemer lives and I will see him. And Father, we pray that that would be the hope that keeps us going in the brokenness of our world. Help us to cry out to you with all of our questions. Help us to give each other permission to hurt, permission to struggle, to permission to have questions. But help us most importantly to point each other to our Saviour, the one who's answered our biggest question the one who has broken the power of death and can give life to us if we put our trust in him. Father, I thank you that my Redeemer lives. I thank you that for so many here, we know that our Redeemer lives. And I pray for any person who's here for whom that truth has not yet sunk deeply in, that your spirit would open up them, them up to the most extraordinary love that the God who created us had for each of us. And that even in this moment today, you would meet these people in their hurt and show them the transforming power and love of Jesus Christ. And we pray all this in his name. Amen.